Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Bianca Nogrady. Bianca is a freelance science journalist, broadcaster and author whose work has been published in Nature, The Guardian, Scientific American, the BBC, the British Medical Journal and countless other prominent outlets. She's the founding president of the Science Journalists Association of Australia and a past secretary of the International Science Writers Association. She's also written several books, including two about climate change and the energy transition, and one about what death feels like. So, Bianca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Toby. Now, apart from your obviously impressive credentials in science journalism and science communication in general, You've also developed, I gather, a bit of an interest in something we've touched on a few times in this podcast, but never really drilled down into properly, which is the implications of um, this new or apparently new phenomenon of the celebrity science advisor that seems to have emerged during COVID and about what that means for the people involved. Um, So firstly, do you think this is a new thing? Yeah, so I think certainly scientists are no strangers to celebritydom. You know, there's always been scientists who have risen to prominence for good and bad reasons before the pandemic came along. But I think the pandemic has seen this unprecedented uh, level of science communication and, and profile of scientists who might otherwise not really see much media attention or much social media attention, you know, so epidemiologists, virologists, public health officials, um, you know, people working in fluid dynamics, for example, who have either chosen to communicate their work direct to the public or even to communicate to each other, for example, on social media. Um, public health officials obviously have been front and centre in so many countries uh, in a way that they've never been before. And and that's that's an interesting phenomenon in itself, where you have senior scientists who are now uh, putting time to communicating, as opposed to this being something that's the sort of viewed as the, you know, the domain of the millennial scientists and the, the postdocs and the PhDs. So that, that's been, I think, a very positive development. But with that has come unwanted attention. And how this sort of came to my attention or to nature's attention was the um, this institution called the Australian Science Media Centre, which uh, works with journalists and scientists to try and connect journalists and scientists, essentially, and provide briefings, and there's a few of them around the world. And they conducted just a little survey themselves to see, I guess, what was scientists' experience of being in the public eye, whether that be by choice, you know, on social media or whether they you know, had been put forward for a press conference or whatever the reason. And they found an alarming number of scientists reported uh, experiencing attacks and abuse and harassment following their appearance. Um, You know, this was everything from nasty comments on social media, which I think everybody's unfortunately all too familiar with, but all the way up to quite um, violent threats and quite, you know, sexualised threats uh, particularly, obviously, towards women, and you know, that obviously raised some red flags. And then Nature uh, was interested in exploring this further, and so um, we decided to have a look at this in this feature, and also to conduct our own survey. Not especially scientific. I mean, this was a self-selected population of people who responded, but it confirmed what the Australian Science Media Centre had found, which is that there really is a, an extraordinary level of abuse and attack and harassment levelled at scientists and science advisors, public health officials, anybody who is in the public sphere commenting on aspects, anything to do with the pandemic. Hmm. And this is specifically 
abuse as in personal attacks rather than say a uh, very robust engagement about the science or debates about the issues? Well, I think there's both. I mean, obviously, um, emotions are running high. We're in a, a global pandemic and um, uh, that's uh, had some effects, <laughs> shall we say, on everybody's mental well-being generally, but uh, our physical, economic, social, legal, environmental, everything has been affected by this. So, yes, there has been, a, I imagine, a particularly high level of as passionate and robust discussion uh, between scientists and between scientists and the general public and online. Um, but what we've also seen an increase in is direct threats, is abusive behaviour that cannot be construed as anything other than abusive behaviour. Um, and that has ranged, like I said, everything from, you know, threats of physical or sexual violence. Um, I mean, we kind of dismiss somebody calling names or using, uh, you know, abusive language and say, oh, well, you know, sticks and stones, all of that stuff. But, you know, some of these scientists, when they're getting 100 emails a day or they're getting, you know, 100 social media comments a day, that has a massive toll on mental health. Yeah, uh, but sure. then at the very extreme end, what we've seen is people getting sent uh, letters containing white powder. Um, we've seen uh, direct death threats being levelled at um, high-profile individuals and obviously some of the most famous examples uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci in the US, um, Mark Van Rance, the Belgian virologist who had to move to a safe house because a uh, far-right sniper had gone on the run and uh, was apparently threatening to target him and his family. Um, we, you know, there's been physical attacks on the street, phone, uh, telephone death threats. Those are definitely not acceptable ways of interacting on any subject at all. And, and um, you know, for, for many of the scientists who have experienced these, it's come as a, a, an awful shock, you know, that they are on the receiving end of something like this simply because they wrote a meta-analysis about ivermectin showing that it didn't work, for example. Yeah. I wonder if you think we should be surprised. I mean, is this something that's just now arriving on the doorstep of scientists who haven't experienced it before, but it's kind of equivalent to what other people in the public eye have known for a long time and have lived with for a long time? Or is there something unique about what's happened to scientists and science advisors just recently during the pandemic? The abuse itself is not unique, even for scientists. I mean, climate scientists obviously have been wearily putting up with this for a very, very long time. Certainly this comes as no surprise to them. Uh, similarly, people working uh, in the area of vaccine research, animal research, an, an area where emotions do run very high. And, and in the US, subjects such as gun control are, are obviously attract a lot of um, abuse and uh, and harassment of scientists and, and researchers and public health officials and science advisors. So it's it's not a new phenomenon, but I think what's different about it, the pandemic is the broad range of scientists who've been uh, targeted and for, you know, it's the sort of thing that no one would have expected. Like I said, you know, a meta-analysis on ivermectin showing it doesn't work. And suddenly, you know, a, a researcher has to shut down his social media because he's getting sent um, photos of hanged corpses and coffins. Um, you know, I spoke to someone who, who was working in this sort of the area of fluid dynamics looking at airborne transmission, which was for, a, well, it probably still is a, a topic that perhaps attracts uh, a lot of angry people. Um, yeah, again, getting email threats to the point where they uh, wanted to get some extra security for their laboratory. So I think it's areas of science that would never have been viewed as being lightning rods for this level of vitriol are now um, finding themselves 
you know, on the front line of this um, and for doing nothing more than they were doing before the pandemic. Uh, so that's the most surprising aspect of this. And I think the other thing that's surprising is just the volume of it as well. You know, we have this notion that of trolls as being, you know, the kind of the the lone single middle-aged white man living in his mother's basement. I mean, that's always been the stereotype and, and also somebody hiding behind anonymity. But what seems to be happening with this is that people aren't hiding behind anonymity. They're, they're emailing from their work accounts or they have their full name on their Twitter. Um, the people I've spoken to is uh, suggest that this is much more widespread and much more common behaviour. It's almost like it's become, it's almost become an acceptable way to interact with somebody is to just go straight for the jugular and then see what happens. So it's um, an alarming reflection perhaps of societal norms changing as well. I agree that is quite disturbing because I think it's often discussed in the context of uh, this is something that's unique to social media because of the special conditions that brings. So as you say, anonymity, the fact you can fire off a message very fast without having to think about it or look the other person in the eye without communicating contact. You know, everything is all done in this kind of bite-sized anonymous vacuum. Uh, and I mean, obviously, that's still a problem. I don't want to underplay the consequences of that for those who are on the receiving end and indeed maybe on the sending end as well. But it's very different if it's then people, as you say, writing from their work email addresses with their names and signatures, doing it totally in the open. That's obviously a different phenomenon, or at least it must have a different set of causes or um, like enabling factors. Yeah, and, and I think it's also... Um... I mean, one comment that was made to me recently is people are afraid. I mean, understandably, this is a, a massive global event and it's upended people's lives. It's caused huge amounts of loss and trauma and uh, you know, it, it's sort of it's a groundquake for society in, in so many ways. And people are afraid. And when people are afraid and stressed, then we're not at our best. And um, which is, again, not excusing it, but I think it certainly um, perhaps might offer some insights into why it is that somebody might be sitting in their office and, you know, in a government department or, or a, you know, a private company and just see a scientist saying something on social media or, you know, at a press conference and just firing off an angry, abusive email. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot going on in the world right now, <laughs> uh, which yeah. certainly might explain why so many people are desperate for answers, don't like the ones that they're hearing from science advisors, like, for example, you need to get vaccinated, you need to keep wearing a mask, we need to you know, close schools, we need to close restaurants. Uh, you know, When we hear things we don't want to hear, then... Um, I think maybe humans aren't necessarily good at sort of pausing before they hit the send button. Yeah, I wonder about this because I was wondering if it's kind of, well, okay. On the one hand, it's obviously inexcusable behaviour, especially when you talk about things like people's families being threatened or people being sent packages or sexualized threats. But then in another way, I mean, the way you characterise it just then, it sounds kind of psychologically understandable. You can see how a person might plausibly end up in a position where they do this kind of thing, right? I mean, it, I guess it must be explicable that way because it happens. And I wonder then if to an extent it's just misfiring, it's misplaced frustration or anger. I mean, if my life is seriously affected by some very adverse events, you know, I might lose my job, I might have a relationship breakdown, I might run out of money or have some serious psychological harms or whatever. If that happens and I can identify a person 
and I can say, look, that person has caused all this misery. They're at the nexus of all this. Then it, it really would be rational of me to, to have some ill will towards that person. And, and then psychologically understandable if I sent them some nasty messages. So is it a kind of misfire? These scientists are standing up on TV and they're seen as the face of the pandemic, as it were, bringing the bad news and recommending these ostensibly harmful policies. So people blame them. Um, scientists and science advisors and pu particularly public health officials are an obvious target because they are seen as the ones saying we need to, you know, impose stay-at-home restrictions. Um, you know, Dr Anthony Fauci obviously is a, a prime example of this, that they, you know, it, it is a classic case we are shooting the messenger. You know, people are firing at the person that they perceive to be the cause of their distress, uh, whether that be because they have lost their job or they've, you know, the, the restaurant that they work at has closed or, you know, whatever the, the cause may be. You know, it's the public health officials who are the ones at the press conferences saying, you know, this is what we need to do. And I, I remember in interviewing somebody who's looking specifically at um, attacks on public health officials in the US. And she said, you know, when it's good news, you'll you'll have the governor up front and centre in the press conference. When it's bad news, you'll have the public health official. So, you know, there, there is a, a sense that they are sort of, they're, they're the soldiers that are being sent over the top uh, when uh, when they have the fire is kind of being laid on thick and heavy in a public health perspective. Um, so, you know, they do have a profile. I mean, I didn't even know the name of the chief medical officer for the Australian state that I live in until this pandemic. And I, you know, I've been working as a health journalist for 20 years. So it's, you know, they, they now have a profile that they never, never would have had in the past. Um, even through, you know, influenza, you know, massive influenza outbreaks, through SARS, through MERS, through Ebola, all of these things. You know, these public health officials are really behind the scenes until now. Um, and I think that's a good thing that they have that profile because it's certainly, um, you know, it's certainly in Australia, obviously, some parts of the world less so. But, you know, we had a strong sense that the decisions that the government or the state governments were making were based on the evidence that were based on the advice of medical experts. And so I think for a long time it was accepted. Science was actually accepted, which, I mean, I think you can imagine a lot of climate scientists there just going, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How is it they're getting away with it? And we don't, but, uh, you know, money is the answer. Um, so that, yeah, there's been unprecedented profile for these individuals, for these, particularly in, in public health. Um, but the unfortunate side of that has been when people grow weary, as everybody now is, of the notion that this pandemic is far from over and that it's going to keep upending our lives for some time yet. They are very much the messenger that's going to, that's being targeted. Right. There's a few things you mentioned there which I thought are very interesting. I mentioned at the top of the show that other science advisors I've talked to have also identified this celebrity status and how it's something of a mixed blessing. And there have been one or two wry comments along the lines of what you just said about the responsibility that politicians might shoulder for some of this. Because as you say, it's one thing for a politician to stand up and say, because of the evidence, I have to do X and Y. It's another thing for the politician to say, here's my chief scientist. He or she is now going to tell you what we have to do. And there might be like a noble basis for that. The politician really wants to highlight that what they're doing is scientifically grounded and their decisions aren't just capricious or, you know, it's not all a conspiracy where the government seeks to control us. Or it might be just political deflection, I suppose. But either way, 
we might have wanted this kind of acknowledgement and prominence of scientific evidence for a long time in the political sphere. Is it now the case that we should have been more careful what we wished for? Yes, yes, very much. I mean, I mean, it would be very interesting, you know, looking at things like, um, is it the Edelman Trust Barometer? You know, if they were able to actually look at levels of trust in, for example, um, yeah, public health officials, how those have changed over the last decade and since the pandemic. And, and I, I feel like, and maybe this is just my own perspective, but I, I feel like there's probably an unprecedented level of trust in public health officials um, or science advisors. Uh, well, at least in the sort of maybe the first year and a half of the pandemic because they were saying, well, this is what the evidence tells us we need to do. This is what the models tell us we need to do. This is what we've seen in other countries and we either do or don't want to emulate that. But I think maybe the challenge now is that, well, first of all, people are growing weary of the same message, um, but also it's getting so much more complicated. You know, we have vaccines, but then we also have boosters and then we have more boosters and then people wanted it to be over you know public health officials were saying get vaccinated get vaccinated get vaccinated you know the, there are probably numerous think pieces to be written about the, the health communication aspects of this and understanding that vaccination saves lives it doesn't necessarily prevent infection and so it's become very messy and that's a very difficult environment I mean sciences can be difficult to communicate anyway in terms of you know, communicating the nuance of, of scientific evidence. But, you know, when you throw all of these different variables into the mix, it's, I mean, it is a devil's work to try and actually get a single clear message across to a weary and now thoroughly pissed off public. Yeah. Yeah, but hearing you talk as a science communicator about the importance of a single clear message, I think it's very interesting because I think as well as science advice and the process that underpins policymaking now being out in the public, we also suddenly find that the scientific process itself is out Absolutely. and under the spotlight. And perhaps people have started to realise that science often doesn't have a single clear message. It's always evolving and the evidence is often unclear. And then this idea of scientific knowledge being all about uncertainty and evolution and debate, I think is kind of in tension with the need for public health instructions and scientific communication to be clear and simple. And that is mixed in, like you said, with no doubt a bit of a well-meaning attempt to encourage public compliance with these urgent public health measures by saying things like, look, you only have to do this one thing, we'll all be okay. Wear a mask or stay at home or get your jab. We've ended up with a bit of a mess of communication, half clear and simple, half uncertain and subtle. And I, I really don't know from my point of view, whether this has strengthened the public narrative about science compared to when things happen more behind closed doors or, or weakened it. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, it's a, a really interesting area for discussion because in a way science uh, and science communication for a long time has done itself a disservice. And this is a while ago now, went through that stage of saying, you know, the breakthrough, the cure for cancer, the world first, the, you know, it was the simple message. It was the, it wasn't the story of science. It was the end result. It was always about the end result. And I think what we're seeing now and what we've seen with the pandemic is, you know, this is the messy and this is how the sausage is made, <laughs> so to speak, the science, the science sausage. And I think that's an important reckoning for, for the public to have, um, to realise that science is a constantly evolving process. And this notion that science does not prove anything, you know, this is not, unless it's mathematics, obviously, it's always challenging itself. It's always questioning itself. It's always trying to prove itself wrong. And, you know, the, the point at which we accept 
something as canon, for lack of a better word, is the point at which everybody just gets sick of asking the same question and getting the same answer. And I guess the challenge in the pandemic has been that has not happened. You know, we, we keep asking the same question and then with each new variant, we get a different answer, whether that be questions about vaccination or about the value of masks or the value of stay-at-home restrictions. So, I mean, it's, it is both a blessing and a curse in that respect that I think it's, it's um, certainly revealed like you said, how science works to a general public that might be used to uh, absorbing the occasional kind of breathless piece um, on, on you know, news media about some breakthrough that's going to cure whatever. Um, and now it's like, well, no, this does actually constantly change. And, you know, certainly just watching engagement on social media, even between scientists, which I find interesting, you know, is that people try and pigeonhole a scientist like, well, you said this, you are a zero COVID person or you are a anti-masker or you are a, you know, and and there's been a lot of anger at scientists for changing their minds, which I find astonishing because that's what scientists should be able to do when presented with new evidence is to actually reevaluate the evidence and then change their position or their understanding. I mean, that's what science does. And whether that's been adequately conveyed, I, I mean, I think this is perhaps certainly in Australia, I think um, our politicians at the federal level have not done that very well. There has been very much an absolute, like you said, do this and all will be well. You know, these are our three steps. It's like, you know, the three-step program. We've got to do this, get vaccinated, use this app, and uh, I can't even remember what the third one was, um, and we will be out of this. Meanwhile, you know, we had this extensive um, world-class modelling going on um, with all these research that was incredibly nuanced. I mean, these modelling reports were just massive. You needed a PhD to read them, and there were so many caveats. There were so many qualifiers, but none of that came through in the press conference. You know, that it was just, nope, we're going to do this and we'll, everything will be fine. And so, yeah, there has been a lot lost in translation. I mean, but then again, you know, you try and put one of these modelers up and, and that happened. There was one press conference where one of the main scientists involved in the um, epidemiological modelling did a presentation and you could just see, that, you know, most people just going, what? You know, that that's the challenge that scientists face in communicating in a situation like this or any situation, really. Yeah, I don't know. I worry about this because sausage makers don't advertise on their packets how sausages are made, right? <laughs> they show photos of happy customers eating nice sausages. They don't show, you know, abattoirs and cows' intestines and so on. So I feel like sausage makers listening to our discussion would have their heads in their hands. I mean, <laughs> these press conferences, I hear what you're saying. On the one hand, we've got scientists thinking, well, you know, it's not as simple as one, two, three, and the job is done. There's all kinds of uncertainty and everything. But on the other hand, when you really need people to follow instructions so that people don't die, that's not the time to be giving a nuanced account of uncertainty and evolution and scientific method. It's a time to say, frankly, please do one, two, three, because that's what science says, full stop. So it, I think it really depends what your objective is here, protecting public health or enhancing public understanding of how science works. Mm. Uh, absolutely. No, that's that's a good point about you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Um, but, I mean, I think for me, uh, you know, certainly as a science journalist, what's most interesting about writing about science isn't necessarily the end result. It's the journey that 
scientists go on and, and their own kind of, you know, that, that path, that journey to the discovery or to the revelation or whatever it is. Um, and I, I guess that's probably not so relevant in a pandemic context in terms of a press conference where you're trying to get people to, you know, step up and get their booster vaccine. But I think what perhaps has been missing is an acceptance that this is a constantly evolving situation. Like, it's not necessarily that that nuance needs to be communicated right then and there. It's, you know, it's like, get your boosters. You don't just say, get your boosters, but in six months or depending if there's a new variant, you might need another one, but then we might also have better antivirals. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, definitely that's not a scenario that's ever going to happen at a press conference. It'd be hilarious if it did, but I can't imagine it. But perhaps what is you know, the message that I feel hasn't necessarily been communicated, at least at the kind of very high level, mainly by politicians, is, look, we are still learning. We are constantly learning and this thing is constantly rewriting the rules. So please understand right now this is what we need you to do, but that may change in six months. But right now to get us through the next three months, this is what we need you to do communication of uncertainty. There's been a lack of communication of just the existence of that uncertainty, to, to my mind. And, and and science communicators are just as at fault in this as well, you know, that I don't think we are good at conveying uncertainty. We like to be able to say, ta-da, here it is, bum, and that's the story and we walk away. But I think science, uncertainty is inherent to science and that needs to be better emphasised, I think. Yeah, let's um, let's haul ourselves back to the original topic of abuse because before we finish, there's a couple of other points I just wanted to raise with you. Um, firstly, you mentioned that women tended to get more sexualized abuse. Did you find that women, or I guess other groups that we might also imagine would have a harder time, like ethnic minorities, um, did they in fact have a harder time in general? Did they get more abuse? Well, this is a difficult one because certainly in the survey that Nature did, so I think there were 321 respondents, all self-selected, so people who chose to respond to the survey, um, uh, it didn't show a clear difference between men and women just in terms of um, the quantity of abuse and even the nature of abuse. But we lumped sort of physical uh, threats and sexualised threats in the same category. And I have a feeling if we split those categories, we would see quite a significant gender effect. Similarly, if we'd also talked about kind of racist abuse, um, if we'd split that out into a second, a third category, we would have also, I suspect, seen, um, you know, a distinct difference between uh, people of colour and white, white people in terms of the kind of abuse. So I don't get the sense that women or people of colour or um, minorities were more targeted, but perhaps they were targeted in a different way and the nature of abuse was different. It may also just be that who's doing the speaking. I mean, still uh, science is male-dominated, still it's going to, to more often than not be um, men who are uh, speaking at press conferences or who are presenting. I think there's a fairly kind of direct uh, correlation between the amount of exposure and the amount of abuse. So it's a difficult one to tease apart. But, yes, certainly the nature of the abuse itself is different based on the identity of the person, you know, doing the communicating. Mm. And then my other question was about context. I wonder if you have a sense from the data you've looked at or the research you've done, whether the general political or societal context made a difference to the amount of 
abuse there is. I'm thinking in particular about places like the US under Trump, where you know Trump missed no opportunity to denigrate science advisors, or, or countries like Brazil or Hungary, where the general conversation about science was not such a positive one. Did that have an effect on the levels of abuse science advisors got? I mean, I think it, it probably did make a difference, but I don't know what difference it made. Um, I mean, certainly when you have, you know, the political leader of a country basically giving licence to the abuse of their own medical personnel, then, yeah, of course that that is going to lead to more targeting of that individual. Uh, I mean, the Brazil one's an interesting one because so many of their policies were really not based on evidence, you know, in terms of, the, for example, the drug combinations that... Um, were being advocated hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. It's like, could you just pick any other drugs that didn't work? Like, you've really got all of them there. And so it, that, I think, uh, made it very difficult for scientists to speak out against those policies. And, and certainly um, I spoke to one scientist um, who was very much targeted through a number of different channels by supporters of uh, President Bolsonaro. And so the political context matters but it doesn't um it doesn't explain everything i mean you know obviously even in australia where our public health officials were front and center at pretty much every press conference all the time um that you know they actually became sort of celebrities in a very weird way you could you know buy bedspreads with the face of the victorian chief <laughs> chief health <laughs> officer on them and you know he was kind of getting called a silver fox so they got a bit of a following i think i know they, there was definitely some fangirling going on there's still abuse there uh, it certainly didn't protect them. I, I don't think there's any scientist or science advisor or public health official in any country in the world that will have um, got off lightly in this pandemic. Okay, I really now have to ask Google if you can get a Chris Whitty bedspread. <laughs> <laughs> the mind boggles. Okay, so so look, whose job is it to address this problem of abuse? Well, there's a lot. Uh, I mean, obviously, social media companies quite rightly come in for um, a lot of attention in terms of their fairly widely accepted bad handling of abusive and uh, bad behaviour on their platforms. Um, and, you know, I think there's there's obviously reams that's been written about that and I don't know that they're necessarily doing any better, although they have, you know, platforms are introducing measures that are supposed to make it easier for individuals to control the nature of the conversation, um, certainly the conversation that they're involved with. Um, there's, I mean, there, I think also employers and institutions have a duty of care towards their staff, their academics, to support them, to provide them with resources that they need, whether those be, you know, psychological resources or security or um, IT, email help, social media help. And this is certainly, I think, something that came out very clearly was um, most institutions handled things very badly when they had a scientist or an academic who was on the receiving end of this. Um, you know, there were situations where, you know, there was a concerted campaign against a particular scientists in the form of complaints to the university, um, which were investigated, the university investigated without telling the scientists that uh, they were being investigated and only informed them, you know, after the fact, it's like, oh, well, we cleared your name. Meanwhile, this scientist was was experiencing, you know, a, a quite concerted campaign of email harassment and then to find out that the university was not even considering or supporting them or approaching them for their perspective on things was quite, I think, 
um, didn't come across well. And, you know, even simple things like uh, academics asking for their um, contact details to be removed from the website, you know, a telephone number or their email address to be removed so that it make it harder for people to contact them. You know, for some that took several emails and, and several weeks before that action was taken. So I'm hoping that there will be a lot of lessons learned from this for, well, from all institutions, but certainly in the context of what we're talking about for scientific institutions, for government institutions, um, universities, to um, develop very clear guidelines and strategies and points of contact um, for their staff who find themselves in this situation. Um, because even just something as simple as saying to, to scientists before anything even begins, saying, look, this might happen. You know, if you, you know, if someone's got a paper that they're putting out about, um, you know, the relationship between lockdowns and suicide rates, whichever way they're arguing, they're going to attract some, some um, angry people. So to say, look, this may attract some unpleasant interactions. Here's what we're going to do to support you. Here's what you can do to uh, minimise the risk of that happening or to minimise the effect that can go a long way. And even just something as simple as saying, you know, when an academic or a researcher is experiencing this level of attack to say, look, we, we're here, we support you, we stand by your work. First and foremost, if someone's being attacked, you, you want to make sure that they're okay. So there is a lot, a lot that institutions could and should be doing to support staff. I mean, this does come down to a duty of care and, and pastoral care, and it is an occupational health and safety issue. Uh, I, I hope that the pandemic has certainly revealed that because, I mean, some of these researchers, a huge mental health toll of, of waking up every morning to 50 emails in their inbox telling them that they're going to get shot or that, yeah, horrible, horrible emails. And, and as, you know, as, as one person that I interviewed said, you know, if, if somebody stood up in my lecture theatre and shouted this at me, they would be bundled out by security within a heartbeat and yet this comes to me in my email, I read this in my home, and no one bats an eyelid. It's a, it does require a big rethink on the part of employers. I guess there's also, I mean, you know, it's a societal-wide problem that this has become more acceptable to say this to somebody. I mean, I, you know, even just in my own interactions on social media, I always find it amazing when you know, someone's opening gambit is to abuse me or to say, oh, you're such a stupid journalist. It's like, where do you think this is going to go? <laughs> Since when did that become an acceptable conversation starter? People are hurting and there's no doubt about that and we're not at our best in that situation, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think what we as a society don't want is less communication by the very people whose work is going to be critical to us getting out of not just this crisis, but the climate change crisis, the biodiversity loss crisis, the whatever pandemic is around the corner. We need scientists and public health officials and science advisors, we need to understand this so that we can deal with it, we can prevent it, hopefully. Um, and, you know, with the IPCC report recently, I mean, it showed us that we have so little time, we can't afford the scientists working on this front line to be spending three hours a day batting away abusive emails. So just, we just don't have time. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. But then there's doing the science and there's doing the communication. Because you also hear it argued, don't you, that um, when someone has to stand up in front of the public and give them the bad news, 
it should be the politician doing that. They should be brave enough to own their decisions. And, uh, because at the end of the day, it's their policy that's being presented, not just like a set of scientific facts. So, of course, the politician can indicate when they've used the science and what evidence they've taken into account and what not and so on. But they're the ones who are trained and experienced in the political arena. And, I mean, no doubt they don't deserve abuse either, but they're certainly better better equipped to handle it and more accustomed to working in that kind of environment, maybe, than your average shy, mild-mannered scientist who can then go back to doing the research. I don't know how you feel about that. Well... I mean, maybe part of the problem is that people don't necessarily trust politicians anymore, or did they ever? I don't know, but I, you know, certainly I feel in the in the era of Trump and and the kind of the populist leader who um, seems to fly by the seat of their pants, are made of lies. That's a bit of a name, <laughs> but I do feel and purely personal opinion, I don't know that there's any evidence to back this up, that, you know, when a public, somebody whose title is doctor or professor or, uh, you know, chief medical officer gets up and says, this is what the evidence shows, that I feel would carry more weight in this era than a politician doing the same thing. Um, and certainly what's interesting is um, in Australia, I mean, we've, we've moved away now from public health officials speaking at press conferences. They've been sidelined. And when that happened, that was very noticeable. Uh, and it was commented on, you know, it's like, where is Dr. Kerry Chant, who is our chief medical officer in New South Wales? You know, she was always front and centre at the daily press conferences. Um, and then she wasn't. And, uh, you know, that prompted a lot of speculation. And certainly it became clear that uh, the political line that was being taken did diverge from what the scientific advice was. And there were some very interesting press conferences where you could see that tension writ large. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't know. I want to hear from the scientists because I, uh, I think their interest, or certainly from the public health perspective, their interest is public health. It's not getting re-elected. And that's obviously differs in different countries. They, their only skin in the game is to do their job well and to, you know, in a pandemic, you want to hear from the public health officials. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, and this is probably reflecting my own kind of political cynicism. Yeah, I, I wonder how much people would have trusted the advice if it had always been politicians up there giving it. Yeah, well, that's fair. I'm sorry to say we haven't resolved these issues today. But I think at least we've given them a good airing and it is time to draw a close to our conversation. So it only remains for me to say, Bianca Nogrady, thank you very much indeed for having this conversation with me. You're welcome. It's been fun. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.